It's not just time to get away. It's time to travel with Anita. From around the world to across Georgia, she covers it all. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, have you thought about how food travels from one place to another with the people who call that place home? As people move from one place to another, they take with them their culture, food, traditions, and all of those things that makes them who they are. And with food, there's an integration of what comes with the people and what was there before. And not only the food, but preparations, cultural attributions, and lifestyles. And during the 17 and 1800s, as enslaved Africans were brought over to what would become America, they brought with them the skills for many different food types. Now, culinary historians like my guest, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, study the food maps and the influence of food and people as they migrate around the world. Dr. Harris is not only a culinary historian, she's also a professor at Queens College and the City University of New York. She's also a journalist, previously the travel editor for Essence Magazine. Her book, High on the Hog, has been made into a docuseries on Netflix. You may have seen it. I recently spent the weekend with Dr. Harris on Sapelo, and we talked and talked about a lot of things. And during this whole show, I'll share my conversation that I had with her and how African foodways are a larger part of what we call American cuisine. I'll start with her telling me all about her childhood and what inspired her to journey around the world and research food. We know you as a culinary historian. Okay. But I want to go back now. Tell us a little bit about who Jessica Harris yeah. is. Because <laughs> How long you go? <laughs> I know, I know. I want to hear about, you know, the young girl growing up in New York. And, and you were telling us last night about your visits to you know, Martha's Vineyard. And you guys eventually had a place there, too, mm-hmm. you know, after going and visiting. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about, about that part of your life. Because I always say that somewhere in our childhood, shapes us for those things, those paths that we take oh, as we go on in okay. life. Okay, well I can tell you what shaped, well, aside <laughs> from my parents, because I was blessed with absolutely extraordinary parents. I mean, they were, I'm still trying to figure out how my father knew to dream what he dreamed. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had dreams, he had enormous dreams given where he started, and attained most of them by the time he died. But I have absolutely no idea how he formulated those dreams and then he was extremely fortunate in that you know he met my mom and Mm -hmm. they were their team they were a team I think one of the reasons that I've never married is because I kept looking for a team that would be as formidable as my parent Mm -hmm. and that didn't happen but um so I'm an only child that is an important part of the narrative because my parents were basically hard-working black people. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, I'm to the manor born and we inherited, we didn't do none of that. Uh, you know, my dad worked hard. I remember as a child, do? well, he worked in what now they would say is HR. Mm-hmm. He worked for the government at the Veterans Hospital. He was in HR there. And, um, and my mother worked. And she started out as a secretary. And then, well, actually, she started out as a trained dietitian. She actually had a degree in dietetics from Pratt. But her friends convinced her that was too much like being in service. You know, I was like, you don't want to be working for them white people. So she stopped. 
and um, and became a secretary, and mm-hmm. she worked her way up from you know secretary, I guess secretarial pool or something like that, to being an administrative assistant at Queens College. So I'll mm-hmm. tell people I'm spawn of Satan at Queens College because <laughs> I knew where many of the bodies were buried. Oh having, my goodness! Having grown up there, you know, <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. That's right? a whole other story. <laughs> but the parents and my dad worked definitely two jobs. He always had a side mm-hmm. hustle when I was growing up. I remember at one point he was selling shoes at Gertz, which was a department store. At some other point, he was selling rugs at Gertz or something like that, along with the good government job. Um, So uh, they, you know, and I was late child for them. I mean, uh, my parents were 35 when I was born, which back in the day day was old. That was geriatric. But because of that, they poured all of their attention and all of their hopes and aspirations into me. Mm-hmm. So the thing that formulated me in many ways is that I am the first non-UN related child to go to the United Nations International School in New York. So that means that I actually went to that school with Ralph Bunch's children when he was Secretary General. But that means that I grew up knowing a different world. Mm-hmm. I grew up knowing a very much wider world right. than the world of even my, you know, Playmates on the block because uh, the person who calls me first friend, and we do call each other first friends because we've known each other since pre-K, <laughs> is uh, lives in England and, and in Wales to be accurate. You know, one of my other early friends was a Shivite Brahmin from Madras, India. There was a kind of core group of us. There was a Linnet who was Welsh. There was Ruth who was British. There were the twins, Susan and Jennifer, who were British. There was Danuta, who was Polish. There was Shika, who was Indian. There was Vasu, who was Indian. And, you know, we mm-hmm. all went pretty much from at least first grade all the way through Obviously. junior high together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you go to birthday parties at people's mm-hmm. houses, and they're serving their food. Yeah, and you, you see know? their cultural way of doing Absolutely. festivals and so celebrations. It was, it was, you know, it was a very different way to grow up, and it was... It was interesting. I have reconnected with some of them really in the past just decade or so. And I remember having a conversation with Elinid and Elinid said, you know, one of the things for me is that I never fit in. Mm. Because she was British, but raised in the States. So she wasn't British and she wasn't American. And she said, I can't even imagine what that is for you. Mm -hmm. And it's true because I'm not European. I'm not American. I fit in everywhere, mm-hmm. but I fit in nowhere. And you know, you've shared over this weekend two different friends. You know, we all talk about different places or different foods. And you mentioned a friend that you have here and a friend that you have there. And I would say that's led to that as well, that you're open Absolutely. to becoming friends with people that maybe on the outside seem different, but you certainly have all well, these similarities. We kind of look at each other and go, oh, you're a little <laughs> weird too. We must belong together. <laughs> kind of thing that one uh-huh so yeah so you know i have i'm i'm open to friendships with the world and so i think that's very much a part of what formulated me i mean or at least that's what i give that part of grounding of me this is the part that surprises a lot of folks is along with that i had serious grounding with two grandmothers. So my maternal grandmother was actually a Baptist minister's wife who um, who was out of Virginia. 
Mm-hmm. So she, her people were from Roanoke. And so she was very much the one who entertained and all of the rest of that. My paternal grandmother was country people. She was country people from a Centerville, Tennessee. Smack dab Centerville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. in the center of, of Tennessee, and and had a hard life. Mm-hmm. But I remember, and I mean, you know, people always go, but, but you're Dr. Harris, and this, that, and the other. Yeah, but I spent a lot of my childhood with my grandmother in the South Jamaica projects uh-huh. in New York City. I remember her growing collard greens. I remember her growing peanuts. I remember her growing field peas because I'm old enough so that there were still what they call in England allotments. And the allotments were the, the land that they gave the people who lived in the projects. Yeah. So you could have your own victory garden. I must have been small because I remember looking way, way up and the Long Island Railroad train tracks were running right across right there looking, yeah. at, the, you know, looking at these little re- long rectangles long rectangle. of, of garden. Mm-hmm. But I remember she made live soap mm-hmm. <laughs> on the stove, you know, in the projects with a big, I guess it was a broom handle that she would pump <laughs> up and down to, you know, do all of that. So that's the part that people look at me and go, you know about that? And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I do, you know, and actually experienced it. It wasn't just from reading it. Yeah, yeah. So those experiences really do influence. Yeah, and they mark you. I'll stop here and come back with more of my conversation with Dr. Jessica B. Harris, the culinary historian, here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Conrad had a fight. Beans, Beans knocked Conrad out of sight. Beans. Conrad said, now that's all right. Beans. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. Our families influence us in so many ways. For some of us, it is to explore our imagination and see the world, making connections. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. My guest, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, is sharing her life story and work with me today. She starts this segment telling me how her father inspired her to be imaginative and curious. I think I also inherited from my father, I have an ability, and I'm not even sure why or how, to read something and experience it. Hmm. I have a very vivid imagination. I mean, my father at one point had a girlfriend who was very much involved in the fashion world in New York, and my dad was an ardent fashion person, loved, you know, dressed to the nines the whole nine yards. Um, but... So one of the things I used to do for him was buy him W, the magazine, when it first came out. Every Christmas I'd get him a subscription to it. But one year I had a party and this girlfriend had actually been to the party that was being written about in W. And, um, and my father had read about the party at W. He had not been to the party. My father could tell the girl who had actually been there more about the party than she knew when she'd been. <laughs> so he just had that kind of vivid imagination, mm-hmm. which I've inherited from him. So, you know, I also can do that. And then I like to make connections. It's just like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I saw something like this in that place over there. Mm. three months ago, but I can connect that with here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the connection may be completely spurious, but it is at least enough to make me 
think about investigating it. It's just oh, like last me. night, if you remember Casa Sharia? Yes. You know, the last part of her name is Sharia, which is Islamic law. Now, given the history of Islam here, maybe. Maybe. Certainly worth a- investigating. You know, is it something that your parents formed for? Right. You know, is is it part of something that that they're trying to tell you about tradition without telling, telling you about tradition? Telling you about tradition, yeah. You know, so there's all of that. But, I mean, that's, that's how my head works. Your memoir, My Soul Looks Back, mm-hmm. talks about a lot of your life as well. And your social circle and some of the well-known blacks that you were, just you were part of that social circle. With well, wait, 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 wait. I was 15 to 20 years younger. I like to sort of phrase it by saying I was the tail of the tail of the kite of their friendship. Mm-hmm. I was not, not their social in the, circle. In the circle, social I circle. Was, I was so, social circle adjacent. I mean, they all knew me. You know, I knew them. They knew me. They, you know, if they walked into the room now, I walked in the room, they say, hi, Jessica. Mm-hmm. But we weren't tight, tight buddies, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's important to also say. Yeah, well, tell me about those relationships, though, and how they influence you. Uh, I think, I don't even know. I think now, looking back on it, that they may have seen stuff in me that because of who they were mm-hmm. and where they were, and to talk about the who, it was James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and mm-hmm. a lot of people. I mean, I'm in South Carolina, so Verda Mae Grosvenor was one of the people who legitimized and honored for the first time publicly the term Geechee. I think that some of them saw something in me that they knew or that they knew they knew the road I was going before I knew where I was right, going. Right, right, right. In a way. Um, the last time I saw Verda, I remember she had some pictures. Verda and I were like oil and water. It was fine, but then it wasn't fine, and it was fine, and it wasn't fine. But she had some pictures from um, Beloved, the film that she had done. Mm-hmm. And she kept, she kept grabbing my hand and dragging me back, much to my great dismay, and pointing at the pictures and like, this is so-and-so. Remember, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. Remember. She said, because you are the one that's going to tell this tale, so you need to know who these people are. Right. But now, you share with me that you met Maya Angelou mm-hmm. on several occasions, and I was sharing with you that I recently did a podcast. Yes, you where did. I talked yeah, about, yeah, yeah. about her and her life and everything. So tell me, what was she like when you had a chance to sit down with her and talk, or you know, as a friend or as a person who was friendly with you? What, what was she like? Again, that is, that was a knowing of Maya. And mm-hmm. you, if you note, I call her Maya. And she would allow me to call her Maya. Maya Angelou was no joke. She did not allow people to call her Maya. Yes. She was Dr. Angelou. And I got very adept at doing the, you know, third person discourse. Oh, I'm speaking about Dr. Angelou. Mm-hmm. But we knew each other for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Because when I first met her, I was in my 20s. And I guess when I last met her, I was in my 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that would be about right. She was 20 years older than I was. And, you know, I first met her, I was young, raw, all the rest of it. <laughs> um, and she was just really, I guess, coming into the the Maya, 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 Maya. 
kind mm-hmm. of thing, because it was before she had any of the honorary doctorates. It was before she did the the poem at the Clinton inauguration. Mm-hmm. It was before all of that. I think uh, I know why the Cage Bird Sing had come out, and I'm not sure that the second volume of the multi-volume autobiography, which is, if I'm not mistaken, Gather Together in My Name, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that that volume had come out. Mm-hmm. She may have been writing it. You know, so that's a long time ago. That was a very different Maya and a very different Jessica. But over the years, we kept coming and going. We shared a particular friend whose name was Samuel Floyd. And um, and when Sam died, she, um, she reached out to me. And I remember being a little, you know, uh, you know, I'm not the grieving widow. I'm not sure what's happening here, mm-hmm. but, you know. Um, and then we split, and then we got back together again, and that was when I guess the friendship started sticking in another way, and mm-hmm. that was um, much later. But and then we became fairly close. I mean, mm-hmm. she always she used to say at some point, Jessica, what would you like ask me for something? And I was like, I don't know, I ask you for something. Why ask you? <laughs> so I, now I wish it's like I wish I'd asked her to introduce me to Oprah. You know. <laughs> But no, um, so it was, you know, it was funny. And then it got to the point where she would call and say, how do you make this? I want to I want to make some ginger beer. What kind of what kind of recipe you got? And so we have that kind of kind of conversation. Too. Yeah. And then the last time I literally went to see her in Winston-Salem. And um, and she was ill. And we talked and had a good conversation. I was at a conference in Greensboro. And at the end of our conversation, the first day, I sort of said, do you mind if I come back tomorrow? I must have sensed that, you know, this Mm -hmm. was the last. But Maya was always also very, very, very absolutely particular about giving people their title. And I remember being in a taxi with her in New York, and she would always get into taxis, and at that point, the taxi always had the drive. She would always get into the cab, sit down, and say, good morning, Mr. So-and-so. Mm-hmm. How are you? I am going where mm-hmm. she was going. And that was always very, very foremost. But so the gentleman came and got me again, and, and the second time, I think she was having lunch, and so we actually kind of cooked together, but she had by that time become slightly infirm so Mm -hmm. she couldn't get up and move around a lot but she had a lovely assistant who um, who would bring things and she would taste things and mix things and say now I need some more of this or can you bring me that Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how it all worked Mm -hmm. and then that was that was the last time I saw her we did a a fair piece of road together Mm -hmm. great memories memories absolutely Dr. Harris is the author of High on the Hog, which has been made into a docuseries on Netflix. I'm sure you guys may have seen it, but you got to check it out. They already signed up for a season two. That's Netflix, High on the Hog with Dr. Jessica B. Harris. I'll stop here, take a break, and when I come back, I'll pick up my conversation with Dr. Harris. She shares more about how she captures the details of the stories that she writes. Here on Travel with Anita and Friends.
to find the happiness I see When we're out together Dancing cheek to cheek Photographs capture a moment and tell a story. But how do writers get their inspiration, especially those who write about their own experiences? Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. Dr. Jessica B. Harris is my guest today, and she shares how she captures her words from her experiences when writing versus taking a photograph. She's an inspiration. I have to tell you that I love that photo that's on the cover of your book. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, uh, that's my babe photo. I'm like, woohoo. Uh, it, it, it captures some of the things that you talk about in your life, you know, at that time. Well, too. that was actually, it's an old Polaroid. And I was going out somewhere, and it was just like, let me take a picture. Somebody took a picture, and that was it. And when we were looking for the cover, it resurfaced. Well, I'll tell you, as I get older, I really can see the value in taking photos. When I was younger, I didn't take a lot of photos. And when I was flying as a Pan Am flight attendant, I go back now and really wish that I had taken so many more photos. Well, yeah, it's so photos funny. Are I, mean, I have thousands of photos on my, on my, camera, on my uh, phone now. But I think that... As a writer, if I'm going to write about something, I don't take photos. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the photographer's eye, for me, means that I'm not seeing it as a writer. Mm -hmm. And so I, I take a book and I write things mm -hmm. if I'm going to write something. Mm -hmm. If I'm taking a photo, then I'm, I'm seeing it through a different lens. And it's processing a different way in my brain. Mm -hmm. So there are things, I mean, for example, I have no photos of any of that time period. But I have very vivid memory. Well, that's interesting because I, I think when you take a photo, you're looking to share it with people in one way. You know, kind of they're looking, they're capturing the story there. Because I like to say a lot of times really great photographers are some of my friends that are travel photographers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're capturing a whole story kind of in right. a picture. And when you write something, you're wanting that imagination to well, kind of come alive too. No, I know for me it comes alive when I read a lot. But I, I, I write now nonfiction, so mm -hmm. I'm not really imagining. I'm trying to capture it in words mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to frame and focus a scene that's going to tell it. So I think that's the difference the for difference. me. You know, I'm not trying to imagine it. I'm trying to embed it in the imagination. For example, yesterday, looking at the wisteria, um, I have a note that says it was at the top of the tree, you know, the color gradations of the purple. It looked like... Uh, overflowing cornucopia of grapes. Mm. But that's the kind of language I would use if I were going to try to describe it mm -hmm. to somebody. So that's the kind of thing I have to think about as a writer when I'm in a place, as opposed to as a photographer trying to get that play of light and yeah. shadow and all mm -hmm. of the rest of that. So to it's, frame it's, it, yeah. It's, I think it's just different ways of embedding the memory in your brain. Now, okay, moving on to the culinary historian. Can you tell us exactly what a culinary historian is. <laughs> okay, it's real simple. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, everybody knows Zora nowadays. She was an anthropologist, African-American anthropologist, mm -hmm. uh, out of the Harlem Renaissance, among other things. But she always said that she looked at history, at the world, through the spyglass of anthropology. Mm. I think culinary historians look at the world look at history through the spyglass of food mm. because the bottom line of the human condition is if we don't eat we die true so everybody 
at some point or another is thinking about food. Mm -hmm. Some of us all the time. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And more people all the time than you mm -hmm. can possibly imagine. So I have read parts of Columbus's diaries mm. when he is traveling to the new... He thinks about food. He talks about a meal that he's had with a cacique, one of the headmen of one of the tribal leaders that he meets with. He's, it's all there. Marco Polo mm -hmm. talks about food. The early explorers into Africa talk about food. Mm -hmm. it's, it's there, but it's about how you read, mm -hmm. how you read that text. If you are a culinary historian, you're reading that text looking for that. You know, so that's part of it. That's what we do. Well, very fascinating. But tell me, why are food maps and food ways and the journey of food from where it originated to where it finds itself, you know, at a later time? Why, why is all of that important? Because it tells the story of all sorts of things, of migrations. I mean, we're here in rice territory. Mm -hmm. um, the way the story here was told before we started looking at the way the story was, Mm. was very different. Very, very different. But now we know the story is about African labor. We know that the story is about African ingenuity. We know that the story is about African agricultural know-how. We know all of those things because we've made connections with the food stuff itself. That rice that built this empire, if you will. Yeah and how it, how it happened. But that all is a story that's told through food, that's told because of food. So all of that is important. Um, you can take the same story with corn. You can take the same story with wheat. You can take the same story with peas. You can take the same story with okra. You can, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. anything you put in your mouth has a story as to how it got on that plate so you could put it in your mouth. That's true. People will say that the enslaved Africans brought over certain foods, like rice, brought it over with them. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, I mean, they brought it over with them. They brought it in their hands no, with the skills. Yeah, they brought it in their hands, in their heads, heads. not in their hair. Right, not in, in their, their hair. Hearts, right, probably. exactly. Exactly, but, that's um, what I say as well. Yeah, because I think we've got a lot of, of mythology going. I mean, mm -hmm. Because if you really think about the, and I don't, like to um, because it's so horrific that middle passage that was a journey that could last for months mm -hmm. certainly for weeks and you were literally you know they had a whole set of arguments about how those ships were packed with people there were the tight packers and the loose packers it was an economic proposition for people the tight packers felt if you put as many people in there as you can, yeah, you're going to have some of them die, but you'll still have more. You'll have people who survive. Mm -hmm. and it'll be better. The loose packers thought, give folks a little bit of room. And it wasn't folks. Give the cargo, cargo. a little bit mm -hmm. of room. And it will survive. You'll get a higher survival. Now you're talking about that. Ain't nobody... Put it right. Put you know, it. the bottom line is, right. if, and it's a big if, I knew somebody was coming to get me. You're not stopping to break rice in your hair. I'm not stopping to break no rice in nobody's <laughs> hair. Hell no. Exactly. It's what just... has happened is, if you look at the genesis of that story, 
That is a story that comes down through maroon culture in Suriname. Mm. Very different. Maroon culture, maroon, a word from the Spanish cimarron. Cimarron meaning a runaway. Mm -hmm. So the maroon cultures are the cultures of the people who ran away and established their own fiefdoms out in the back beyond somewhere where they could then return to mm -hmm. as much of who they were as they mm -hmm. were. That makes sense. Because if you are on a plantation right. in somewhere, and y'all know that on X night, Y night, you're going to run, then maybe you do have time to put something in your child's mm -hmm. hair. It does not make any sense at all about the Middle Passage. So you got to look at the genesis of the story as well. Exactly, exactly. You know that they're not, you're not thinking it all the way through if that well, is... Well, think about you know, things. I mean, first of all, you were sleeping, living, and existing in other people's poop. Mm -hmm. For one of a way of putting it. It's going to sprout. You'll be having a, a rice forest in your head. <laughs> also, True. let's think lice. Think about critters people's heads were shaved. Mm. If they weren't shaved before, they were probably shaved after. You weren't mm -hmm. getting there with your lovely little locks. No, no. So that would not have survived mm -mm. the passage mm -mm. over. No, no. And if it did, it was coming off before you got sold. <laughs> so there it was. Exactly. I'll stop here, take a break, and when I come back, I'll ask Dr. Harris to tell us about her book, High on the Hog, which is now a docuseries on Netflix. And you know what, guys? They already signed up for season two. Season one did so well, they're coming back for season two. I'll be back in a moment here on Travel with Anita and Friends with Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Legacy is not just what we pass down to others, it's also traditions, culture, and ways of life that can cross oceans. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. My guest, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, is a culinary historian. She's also the author of the cookbook, High on the Hog, which is now a Netflix docuseries. And in this segment, she shares how the country Benin is also a large part of the human cargo trade. And she shares how and why this docuseries was filmed in Benin. Tell me about Benin and why it's important to the black food history and to us as enslaved people. Okay, um, beware and take care of the bite of Benin. There's few who come out, although many go in. That was what the sailors used to say. The bite of Benin was the largest of all of the slave exporting places, okay? It wasn't Senegal, it wasn't Ghana, it was Benin. And it was one of the latest places, we're talking well into the 19th century that this happens. It turns out that there were, well, there were a lot of, of, of wars between the Ewe and the Igbo and the Yoruba and for, for primacy, you know, power. Mm -hmm. And because of the wars, you know, they lost. Whoever lost the battle was coming over here. Mm. So that happened. And they were um, a lot of the people, and they talk about this in High on the Hog, the docuseries. If you listen very carefully, 
when the African historian is speaking, he says, we were complicit. Mm. He says that it's shameful, but we were complicit. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it too. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the story in all of those places. Exactly. That complicity with Europeans, mm. that means you've sold your brother or your cousin or your cousin from across the way over there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how the process worked. Mm -hmm. So Benin is an extraordinary place because it has a very alive sense of some of that. Mm -hmm. I know that many people here are from Senegambia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, that area because it was rice growing. But Benin in another kind of way because of the sheer numbers. It just stops you for a moment, it doesn't it? It definitely will take your breath away. Yeah. I mean, and I know that when when the producers, Karis Jagger and um, Fabian Toback, were talking with um, Roger Ross Williams about where to go to film this thing, mm -hmm. um, none of them had had any real experience of that western part of the continent. Mm -hmm. And because it is less well known, mm -hmm. A lot of African Americans know Senegal, mm -hmm. and they know the House of the Slaves, and they've gone to Gore Island, and they got that one. Not quite as many, but I think today a lot more are knowing Ghana, and Cape Coast, and Elmina, and they've got that one. Mm -hmm. Very few know Benny. Mm -hmm. That was also the reason to go film there. Mm -hmm. And there was that road in the film too that you're walking down mm -hmm. that. It's the same road that yep. they would have yeah. traveled. Red Laterite Road. You know, people talk about the red clay of Georgia. Yeah. Imagine, you've been on this thing that is bouncing you up and down and you in people's mm. poo and it, it's unspeakable. Yeah. And you get off and a lot was designed to disorient you. Yeah. Uh, and you see the same damn red clay. You know, where did I go? What, what happened to me? Mm -hmm. So there is all of that wrapped up in it too. Mm -hmm. uh, but in talking about travel to places with this type of um, history, like when we go to Africa, should we look for, you know, having something that's familiar, you know, the black eyed peas we've talked about, the rice we've talked about, just some of the things that are home here, you know, when we're mm -hmm. at home, traditional dishes that we have. Those are the kind of things, would you suggest that to get more of that um, involved, connective right, right, experience. Right. Okay, here's several things. First of all, we all, generally speaking, talk about Africa. It is a continent. Mm -hmm. And as a continent, it is so extraordinarily diverse. Um, you may remember the, the children's story about the blind man and the elephant. Yeah. Okay, somebody grabbed the leg and said, oh my God, this is a tree trunk. It is like a tree trunk. Somebody else grabbed the, the snout the, and said, oh my lord, it's like a snake, it's articulate. Somebody grabbed the tail, the, it's that. The part of the continent that you grab may be the part that tells you what it is. And you don't see the full elephant until mm -hmm. you've either done an all, I don't know that anybody's ever seen the full elephant. But for example, um, on uh, Friday night, we had two dishes from the continent. We had, uh, chicken yasa, yasa ganar, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. which is Senegalese. It is not just Senegalese, and here's how we start to drill down on the continent. Yasa Ganar is Senegalese. Yasa, the dish. Ganar, chicken. Yasa Ganar is from the Casamance region of Senegal. So mm -hmm. we drill down even further. further. So we now have West Africa coming down to Senegal, coming down to um, the Casamance. And the Casamance is the southern part of Senegal. It is the rice-growing part. Mm -hmm. It wasn't served that way on Friday, but traditionally that is served over white rice. Mm. The other dish that we had was the um, jollof rice. And uh, jollof rice is probably also Senegalese in origin. It is, I suspect, uh, a variation on chebujen. Chebujen being the national dish of Senegal. Mm -hmm. Chebujen is that rice but that rice is served with vegetables and fish that's cooked in it. Mm. So that you've got um, a kind of fish that's called a dem, and it's a, it's a flat fish, it's a, a flaky, flat fish. Um, mm. And you serve it in steaks. And you've got a filling uh, that is garlic and parsley that would be cut into little pockets mm. in the that's fish. Delicious. And then it's served that red rice has the fish, it has little baby eggplant, it has carrots, it has, it can have pepper, but not, I mean, bell pepper, but not always. And that all together is the chebujen. Okay. And so chebujen is the national dish of Senegal. Mm -hmm. And the chebujen then um, morphs and travels within the African continent and it goes south. So it goes to um, probably Ghana and Nigeria, where it becomes jollof rice. Mm -hmm. Why jollof? Because in Senegal, the jollof empire is located, mm -hmm. or was located, spelled slightly differently. Mm -hmm. But you've got that, so it takes the name of the empire. Mm -hmm. The empire of the Wolof people, which was called the Jolof yeah. Empire, so it becomes Jolof rice, which means if you think about it, they're already acknowledging where it's from, because mm -hmm. it's Jolof right. rice. Okay, so that's what happens there, and then that, if you start to think about it, and if you remember it from Friday, crosses the water mm -hmm. and over here becomes, and you know the answer, red rice. Red rice. Mm -hmm. There you go. So mm -hmm. that's, that's how that thing goes. And you take it down to Louisiana and put some chicken in it, and you got jambalaya. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are, you know, how yeah. that works. Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of follow the food ways and the, how, how it changes and adapts to, you know, the different cultures. Indeed. When we think of, of all of the study and the work that's being done on food, where do you want to see that go? Ideally, I would like food to bring us together, um, we are getting increasingly apart. And food has the potential to bring us together. I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things I would like to see food do. But I also think I want food to inform us. A lot of us don't know who we are. I don't know who I am. I've never done any genealogical mm -hmm. research. but. Um, but I think that that knowing, um, as we drove by the store the first time, mm -hmm. I looked at it and I said, oh my lord, look at that, that's the Sankofa bird, mm -hmm. the Ghanaian Adinkra symbol. Mm -hmm. 
the gold weight symbol of the bird that's kind of got its head turned to look back mm -hmm. because you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Mm -hmm. So that whole idea of go back and fetch it. Mm -hmm. Go back and get that knowledge of where you've been so you can use it to move yourself forward, I think, is part of that, if there's such a thing as legacy. Mm -hmm. That's an important part of it. I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. For more information on purchasing one of Dr. Harris's books, visit her website, africook.com. That's A-F-R-I-C-O-O-K-S dot com. To hear my full conversation with Dr. Harris and tips on visiting Africa, visit my website, travelwithanita.com. And I'll be back in two weeks with more great stories and destinations. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>